0: The Telegraph. Telegraph.
1: Podcasts.
2: I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we'll discuss the intense fighting in the Donbass as Russian forces close in on Severodonetsk, and we look at the impact of the conflict on potash, sanctions and rainforests. This hideous and barbaric venture of
1: Vladimir Putin must end in fate.
0: Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians.
2: Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. To do all of this, I'm joined by Dominic Nichols, The Telegraph's defence and security editor and business reporter Ben Garside. So, Dom, can we start with you? What's the latest from the Eastern Front?
0: Hi, David. Hi, everyone. Severodonetsk, the city in the east of uh, the Donbass, the pocket uh, that Russia's trying to close. Anywhere between 50 and 70% of that city is now in Russian hands. The, The figure's Figures vary according to the to the source. It's obviously very confusing news coming out of there. But um, a significant portion, if not if not most, is in uh, is in Russian hands. Now the the Russian fighters, we should say, they are uh, a mixture of uh, Chechen fighters, the Wagner Group, um, mercenaries, and uh, VDV, the airborne forces. So h- how they're working together, we don't know. How good they are. At, um, at coordinating their attacks, or if it's just a as as has been reported elsewhere, a sort of headlong rush to to gain ground with with huge casualties, um, we're not we're not sure. If they take um are they going to be able to push continue to push west? Uh, un- unlikely, especially as these forces are are light light forces. They are not especially, um, or they're not used to working with with armor, and uh, we don't know how well they work together. So seventh next under under extreme pressure but what happens next uh, if if and as is likely the city falls we don't know uh, worth worth talking as we've talked many times before on this on this pod about what 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 possible what could happen after after some sort of pause um elsewhere uh, the Ukraine knitting together some small counter-offensives, counter-attacks, I should say, down in the south of the uh, of the country around uh, around Kherson, uh, and actually there's reports of of Ukrainian partisan activity around Zaporizhia, which is just slightly to the to the sort of northeast of uh, of Kherson, uh, such that Russian troops are having to move around in heavily armed columns uh, on your, on main roads to protect against uh, against ambushes and the, the troops they are thought to be not not very strong and not and not great quality so particularly susceptible to that kind of activity um high mars we will talk about in, in a moment the, the 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 latest uh gift of of munitions to um to ukraine from the u.s uh interesting comments from dmitry peskov the kremlin spokes spokesperson overnight on that and just finally the russian build-up on snake island continues remember snake island in the, the northwest of the black sea uh, a very small small dot of rock but pivotal if you want to try and For either side, if you want to dominate that area and and try and launch anything into the into the southwest of uh, of Ukraine, the the floating crane that we've seen there for some some days is is still there, trying to lift the Serna class landing craft that was that was sunk and is blocking the entrance way to get get other heavy stuff from ships, other landing craft onto on Snake Island. But Russia is still very keen to build up its forces on on Snake Island. I'll take a pause
2: there. Thanks, Tom. Um, before we come back to talking about the rocket systems, can I bring in Ben Gartside? Um, we learned today, Ben, that Russia is on course to suffer its deepest recession since the collapse of the Soviet Union, um, um, falling 15% today. Can you talk about that? What's what's happening in Russia?
1: Sure. Hi, everyone. Um, so according to a report today from our Brussels correspondent, Joe Barnes, um, Russia is expected to have a recession of around 15%, which on the face of it, might not sound kind of too bad. It is kind of a historically huge recession, one of the biggest in Russia, um, kind of since, as you say, the fall of the Soviet Union. And kind of to put it in a UK context, um, this kind of have to go back to kind of the 18th century, really, to see kind of a sustained recession um, that large with kind of the great far- frost. Um, and kind of what what's kind of important regarding this Russian recession is that the financial picture in Russia in previous years has not been strong. Um, in 2014 to 16, they had a financial crisis. Um, they've kind of, in recent years, not kind of had huge levels of growth. Um, and this kind of sustained recession of 15 percent. And it's it's not expected to be a, a bounce back recession. You may have heard kind of post-COVID um, the phrase that a, a V-shaped recession where down very quickly and up very quickly again. We kind of aren't expecting this um, with this kind of Russian financial crisis. So, this will be a sustained kind of impact on Russian finances with 15% down this year, and then analysts believe somewhere between 0% and 3% down next year, which means that you are still going to, as an everyday Russian citizen, see your kind of pay, your cost of living, your kind of quality of life be really significantly impacted to the extent that. Kind of all the gains and, and kind of financial benefits that have been seen in Russia in the past decade essentially have been wiped off which is which is huge in kind of for kind of everyday consumers
2: thanks uh, ben let 's move back then to these rocket systems uh, Dom that you mentioned earlier uh, i think you've you 've learned more about this since we mentioned it yesterday what 's what 's the latest there so just to go back a little stage on Monday,
0: uh, President Joe Biden was asked about supplying weapons to to Ukraine, so Ukraine for a long time now, weeks, 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 have been asking for long-range artillery. Uh, anything that they're, they're very clear that anything is is helpful. Um, even the helmets, Germany supplying everything's helpful, but they're really after long-range artillery to to push the Russian artillery back and, and hopefully destroy that artillery that is causing such such destruction to civilian areas and also to to Ukraine's forces. So they're after long-range artillery, and uh, they were they were specifically asking they, they've taken delivery of the M triple seven. So towed towed howitzers, um, they're specifically asking for multiple launch rocket systems and the high mass systems, the high mobility, ooh, artillery rocket system, anyway, a, a multiple launch rocket system, um, which could go, um, missiles could go 60, 70 Ks. Now, Joe Biden on Monday said that they weren't going to supply any, any weapons that would be able to strike inside Russia. Uh, and on the face of it, and I was very critical of this yesterday. I said, "Well, that doesn't make any sense at all." I mean, any weapon—if you've got a border with Russia—then any any weapon can can strike inside Russia. And there was a, a sort of rushed defence of this of this position, uh, suggesting that actually, you know, what what he meant was really long range stuff, so stuff that could that could that could. That could Threatened a long a long way in, inside Russia, it opened up a whole debate about well, what what's wrong with that. They've, they've attacked Ukraine, um, isn't it all fair game? But it was deemed too escalatory and too provocative to Russia if if the US was supplying weapons that could that could fire hundreds of kilometers inside inside Russia. And the weapon system we were talking about was the ATACMS, the Army Tactical Missile System, which is fired from that the, the High Mars a vehicle it, it is fired from the, the, the it's a multiple launch rocket system it's just a different round it's, it's one massive great missile basically and that can go about 300 kilometers so it was all interpreted but joe biden didn't use the phrases high mars or ATACMS and get into kind of those weeds um but he it was interpreted that this was not ATACMS was not going to be sent to to ukraine regardless dmitry medvedev the former russian president and prime minister he sort of ping-ponged in and out of post according to putin's whim so according to their russia's constitution uh, putin had to step down as president for a bit and so medvedev stepped up and putin was prime minister but we all know who was pulling the strings anyway dmitry medvedev he's still uh, he's the chairman of the national security council in russia so he's still a, b- a big player a longtime ally of putin he said that this comment from biden was quote rational um, and again, as I said, I was, I was critical yesterday of Joe Biden saying, well, you know, if, if Dmitry Medvedev is coming out on your side, then, you know, you've probably you've probably made a mess. Now, so last night, America said that they would supply high Mars um, and the mood music was or they, they've talked about the, the natures of ammunition that they will be able to supply. And it did not include ATACMs. So the, high, the standard high Mars, which can still reach 60 or 70 Ks. It's that long-range artillery that that Ukraine have been asking for for a long time. which would have been very, very helpful in the current fight when when Russia had concentrated their force in the Donbass. So, so these kind of things would have been very helpful in that. But hey, you know, no point looking backwards. Uh, Got to go forward. So, ha- mars finally, finally on on the way. And I just, I just wonder. I've I've su- suggested in today's um, Telegraph newsletter, which I think you need to. I think you need to register. The Telegraph, and um, you get the you get the newsletter three times a week. You might get a load of load of adverts for flannel cords and pastel shirts and God knows what else. But anyway, you can you can register for the for the uh, it's free. You can register for the newsletter. I've suggested today that this is either um, either a gaffe by Biden, or given what's happened today and the response from Medvedev, uh, the 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 best piece of diplomacy we've seen so far in in the war. I'd be really grateful to any of our any of our US. Colleagues who, who have an opinion and much better sort of dialed into what's happening in the White House, if they you know, give us an idea. But I just wonder if, if by by inviting this comment from Medvedev, he said he said it was it was rational to talk about these, you know, not striking inside Russia. It's reframed the debate about these weapons in terms of geography rather than capability. And what I mean is that once you start talking about geography and saying, OK, weapons that, that are, are of use and primarily to be used in Ukraine, okay, it, might, it might stray over the border, but yeah, you know, we're, not, we're not attacking Russia. President Zelensky this morning said, look, we're not interested in Russia. We're interested in our territory. We don't want to fight them there. We'll fight them here. So, again, framing it in terms of geography. This kind of moves the debate on a bit from what it was a few weeks ago. You remember MiG-Gate when the uh, alleged you know, MiG-29s from Poland that Poland wanted to supply to Ukraine, that plan was sort of put on hold by the US, um, fearing it was going to be escalatory, too too provocative to Russia. But if the debate now is about about geography, it it sort of moves away from capability, and that, I think that's got to be a, a good thing. It's had the stamp of approval from Russia. If Medvedev says it's rational to talk in these terms again, geography, then I think I think there is there is room here to say right. Well, that's that that now gives. Um, the markers that we all know what the playing field is now, and that hopefully will give confidence to other nations who might want to be supplying weapons, but will fear any any reprisals if this doesn't go well and and Russia uh, prevail. Then some some countries, smaller countries closer to the coast of the fight, might feel a bit left out left out in the cold if they've been supplying weapons. Um, uh, Russia might you know, they might exert some sort of revenge on them. So. The fact that there's now the, the debate now seems to be weapons are linked to geography and firing inside Ukraine is OK. It's the capability. The cap- capability is no no longer the, the central issue. I think that's got to be got to be a good thing um, that we have had. So today on the on the back of the announcement, that the US is going to supply high miles. Dmitry Peskov, the Kremlin spokesman, said that this would be, quote, adding fuel to the fire. So, thanks, Dmitry. Plenty of fires already to be dealing with. No need, No need for that. Um, and he said that this kind of action is not going to encourage Ukraine to resume peace talks. Again, like, yeah, well, yeah, fine, you, you say what say what you like, but you know, I tell you what's not going to encourage Ukraine to resume peace talks, and that's having their cities smashed up and and civilians killed and and the atrocities we've all seen. So I think I'm very willing to eat humble pie on this. Uh, if I've got this wrong, very very happy to say that. If this is a masterstroke of diplomacy from the Biden administration, and that they were seeking to. Um, to reframe the debate, then I think that's, that's genius. I'm not convinced that happened, actually. I think this is, I think this is a lucky happenstance um, after some fairly murky, uh, opaque language from the president earlier on this week. Very helpful that Medvedev came out with with the phrases, it is, and uh, and of course now, yeah, Russia are backtracking and saying, well, uh, it's unhelpful and you know fuel to the fire and so on and so forth. But I just think I just I put it out there uh, partly as news uh, and partly as comment and partly as a bit of self-flagellation. If I've got this completely wrong, and I was I was very critical yesterday of the, of the of the president's words. If it, if it's a masterstroke of diplomacy, then
2: you know bring on the humble pie. Thanks, Tom. Can we just stay with you for a moment? We've got a live question from Charles, who's asking why is it taking so much time for Western weapons to arrive. Um, he says, "Are the Germans just not delivering, or is there a military reason?"
0: Yes, there's a military reason. Uh, there's politics as well, of course. And thanks for, thanks, thanks for the question, Charles. Um, I mean, very very briefly, because it is a little bit dull. But um, w- just having the stuff, having the having the heavy metal that you can you can touch, it, is not is not a capability. So, in the British military, we have this lexicon called tepid oil, right? So, so to bring a piece of a, b- bring a, a capability into service, you need the training. You need the equipment itself. You need the personnel. You need the information about how it works. You need the doctrine about how you're going to fight it. You need the organisations, physically the, the, the structures, the brigades and the battalions. You need the uh, infrastructure to look after it and logistics. So tepid oil. And only once you've ticked off all of those bits and pieces is your is your piece of kit good to go. Anybody can just get a get a bit of kit and and then sort of chuck it into the fight but if you if you haven't got all those things lined up you've only got kit you haven't got capability and i know that sounds a bit wonkish but but that is what military capability is and if you if you just take this stuff off the railhead in in western ukraine shove it straight up the front and you don't know how to use it, you don't know how to look after it, um, you don't know how to store it properly, you don't have the, the, the right doctrine so that it works with all the other, other pieces of your military, you haven't trained your people on it um, well enough, uh, then it's not going to last very long. It might not be destroyed, but you're just not going to be able to, to use it. So in order to bring uh, kit into service, you need all those all those things ticked off, the tep- tepid oil, all, all ticked off. Um, now, in wartime, You can take some risks. Okay, You don't have to train up to the nth degree. You don't have to build all the air conditioned hangers to look after your stuff properly. Your doctrine can be, yeah, shove it up there and let's have a go and see what happens. So you can take some risk and cut a few corners. But essentially, you do need to have considered every single one of those uh, those, uh, eight areas before you can actually start using this stuff. So there's a whole load of things going on in the background bar things being flown into Poland or taken on the railhead down to, to the border of Ukraine and handed over. There's, there's a lot more at play here. Now, I'm not trying to excuse those countries that have, have talked big and, and offered little, okay? And we've, we've discussed that many times as well. But just on the actual physical, uh, once something once something arrives near to the border of Ukraine, why is it not got in, brought into service the, the next day? There's, there's a multitude of reasons for that and, and hopefully I'll just flesh, flesh some of those out. Um, if that hasn't answer your question please dm me and i'll and i'll go into
2: even even more boring detail about tepid oil thank you very much uh dom let's turn to ben Gartside, our business reporter and um, ben we had lots of interesting uh chats earlier today when we were preparing for this and you wanted to come on and talk about potash and the impact of the war thousand miles away and, and, and on supply chains and on the fertilizers do you want to tell us a little bit about what you, what you've been reading
1: sure um so Obviously, today, there's more sanctions news, which I'm sure we're going to go into in a second. But I think it's quite helpful to kind of look at kind of the previous impact of sanctions and the, the impact of kind of the conflict so far on, on the global economy, because I, I feel that we always kind of talk positively about, oh, great, more sanctions coming. And, and in many ways, it is kind of good that, that countries and their economies are kind of making that sacrifice and saying, OK, great, we're going to put in some sanctions, we're going to do something, we're going to kind of try and kibosh the kind of russian and Belarusian economy by implementing them um, but a lot of the time we don't actually kind of look back and look at look at how are these kind of sanctions going and, and a great example of this is the potash market which is um for kind of those that don't know it's kind of like um to dumb it down quite a lot it's it's a type of fertilizer that's that's very common in usage and the kind of market of production of this is dominated within russia and belarus of the global economy of potash comes from Belarus. Um, And therefore, kind of the outbreak of the war and kind of the the ostracization of the kind of Belarusian economy and kind of the outright kind of opposition to the Russian economy has therefore had a huge impact on this market. Um, Today, if you look at prices, um, before in 2020, prices were around $200 a ton. Um, Today, they are around $1,100 a ton. Um, Prices are up around three times in Northwest Europe. And then in Brazil, it's close to six times. Um, So there is a real, real squeeze on this potash price. Um, And this is kind of going to be a long-running issue too. This isn't going to be kind of, as we've said earlier, a V-shaped recovery. This is going to be something that's kind of quite extensively um, impactful in the global economy, not something that if there was a peace deal tomorrow and kind of Russia retreated outside of Ukraine, gave back Crimea, group, gave back kind of the territory it's got, that it would still be a long-term effect on the global economy. Um, analysts expect that kind of um, supply to, they previously expected supply to increase around 15% to kind of uh, interact with glo- growing demand. So to simply stay still pre-war, they expected supply to go up 15%. However, a lot of that new supply was from Russia and Belarus. Um, So now kind of there will be continuous inflation in this, which is not going to help kind of the food shortages and crop shortages we've discussed previously. Um, So and kind of this is with kind of Wall Street now expects that the minimum price going forward, the floor of prices will be five hundred dollars a ton, which means that prices are going to increase two and a half times from what they were in 2020 and stay at that level going forward. There's no kind of return to the previous status quo in the potash market. This is kind of how we expect things to go continuously. And, and the interesting thing about that is that kind of when there's when prices double very quickly, there is obviously a, a lot of money to be made. Um, and you've now kind of seen a lot of global firms kind of go in and, and really try and target the potash market. Um, one area we've really seen this is brazil brazil and canada are two of the biggest suppliers outside of russia and belarus and the kind of knock-on effect of of kind of sanctions is now um, brazil and uh, president bolsonaro uh, really kind of looking at ways to kind of take advantage of this high price and kind of stop the issues in their own country where they've seen prices go up six times but also kind of increase brazil's trade increase brazil's global standing by kind of really targeting the potash market now the opportunity cost of this is that this will kind of lead to a lot of environmental destruction because potash in brazil is traditionally found in rainforests um and there's kind of legislation within brazil that says that in order to kind of extract potash you need to win the support of the indigenous communities and uh, bolsonaro has kind of already kind of um suggested that indigenous communities should be more open to kind of potash mining and kind of getting getting potash Um, and that's obviously to kind of a negative impact in the environmental sector and I think it kind of um, in Brazil and and kind of the rainforest which has been so much campaigning about in previous years and I think it's kind of a great case study in the the kind of reality of sanctions is that yes it's good that Russia's um, and Belarus's economy is being stymied but you kind of have to make that opportunity cost. And it's not always kind of, as we're seeing today, kind of as many listeners in the UK will find out like filling up the tank and it's a lot more expensive, but it's also kind of the environmental cost that you're going to have to kind of, there'll be to kind of keep fertilizer prices vaguely normal. And that's still with a significant increase, there needs to be kind of a lot of trade-off in terms of the rainforest and kind of a lot of environmental projects we take very seriously. And kind of, as this conflict goes on, I think there's going to be a lot more thought and kind of a lot more of a reckoning put into that because it is there, there are so many trades offs and and this is kind of one example, but this will be going on across numerous fields
2: well, thank you very much, Ben. That was um fascinating and definitely slightly worrying for the future um, You mentioned that you wanted to talk a little bit more a little bit more about sanctions. Um, do you want to go back to that what what 's new there
1: sure um so Recently, the EU's 27 member states have agreed a ban to of sea, um, seaborne Russian oil imports. So very obviously kind of if it comes via boat, it is now sanctioned. It kind of gives a bit of breathing space to pipelines of which kind of Hungary, which were one of the main kind of opponents of um, sanctions uh, for oil in the EU. Um, kind of it's how it gets its oil. And that will come later in the year, apparently, Um by the end of 2022, they expect a ban on pipeline imports, which will mean that 90% of um, Russian oil exports will decline um, by the end of the year, according to EU kind of mathematics on this. Um, this has kind of been been hailed initially as kind of quite quite a good deal, but it's kind of worth digging into what the realities of this look like. And Russia, this is obviously going to hit Russia's exports, it's going to hit the amount of tax that the Russian government gets, and it's going to hit... A lot of putin's cronies who kind of run these russian oil exporters um, however it's it's they have kind of made up a lot of that demand with kind of india and china um, and kind of making up that money by kind of exporting to markets who should we say are less morally concerned about where this this oil is coming and what what it's funding um capital economics which is kind of a consultancy thinks that um, Russian oil exports will fall by a fifth this year, even allowing for the 15 percent rise kind of in economies such as Russia, um, such as China and India. Um, and however, due to the price increase and due to the fact that there is this stifled demand that, say, if you are a oil importer in China, um, you may have previously got your oil from ex- elsewhere. But now UK importers want that oil. So they're taking that. So you're having to go to the Russian market to make up for that. Um, despite the fact that they are being hit by kind of a 20% drop potentially in oil exports, the revenue that they are expecting to get is only down 1% or is likely to only be down 1% lower than 2021, which kind of shows that, yes, the volume of oil exports is going down, but the receipts from oil exports are staying relatively still, um, which is kind of why it's worth taking these new sanctions with a pinch of salt. Um, However, there is kind of... um, an impact of of kind of what does this mean for the kind of delay of the pipeline ban mean. Um, and Hungary's kind of held up as the example. Viktor Orban has been very outspoken against kind of oil bans and kind of has kind of slowed down the entire process. Um, Hungary's state-backed kind of um, oil oil company, MOL, um, which is the only refinery in Hungary, um, it's, expects to make two billion pounds, um, dollars, from kind of, this this new setup. So there is a lot of economic benefit that can be taken from countries kind of turning a blind eye, especially when you consider that despite the fact that volume has dropped in 20% in Russian oil exports, the firms are expected to take essentially the same amount of money. Um so and and the European Commission um kind of estimates that this impact in kind of cutting gas supply, which the the EU is, does not look set to do. Estonia and kind of other kind of supportive nations of Ukraine have suggested, like, right, we need to cut down on gas imports from Russia. Um, the EU is very unlikely to do that because cutting imports of Russian gas would impact EU GDP by about two point five percent. Which obviously we've seen big numbers with Russia of fifteen percent. We've seen big numbers coming out of the covered kind of related recessions and it's kind of sanitised a number 2.5% drop in GDP, which is really quite a significant drop. It's essentially taking household finances, at least in the UK, would be like putting that back three years, um, which is a really significant impact. And that is one that kind of a lot of EU member states are obviously not willing to do. Um, But kind of side note from, from the latest EU measures is the insurance market, which, I know many people listening to the podcast will go, oh, God, I don't want to talk about insurance. And fair enough, but this is actually quite important. Um, So the insurance ban basically bans um, UK, EU firms from insuring tankers carrying Russian oil. Now, this means that um, that basically the insurance of ships is much harder and much riskier, which will mean that a lot of places, a lot of ships carrying it are just unwilling to do it. They're not willing to carry their own risk because if there's another oil tanker disaster, if there's kind of an issue there, the ships will be liable. And frankly, the ships are not willing to, to do that. Um, if you kind of look at a lot of the ship nations who carry these kind of fleets, it's the UK, Greece, Cyprus, Malta, um, within kind of Greece, Cyprus and Malta, within the EU, there was a lot of concerns that they were pushing back against this, but it does kind of look to be, to be done. And what this means is that it pus- pushes kind of Russia's oil economy much more into kind of murkier territory. You're now kind of seeing themselves next to Venezuela and Iran, who kind of operate within sanctions as they do and find it a lot harder to get insurance as as they do. Um, It also means that the shipping routes become a lot harder. Denmark, for example, so if you're kind of going via the North Sea, going via Scandinavia as a Russian oil kind of exporter, Denmark is very, very opposed to non-insured vessels coming anywhere near Denmark um, due to kind of potential... Impact of uh, an oil disaster, there the exporter would, the the boats firm would immediately, ironically, sink financially. Um, so therefore, it means that shipping, just physic- physically shipping the oil, becomes a hell of a lot harder. Um, and given that, as we've seen, there will always be demand for oil. There's no such thing as an oil startup. You can't kind of replace that demand by finding it somewhere else. There's a finite amount of oil on the planet, and There will always be more demand than supply, which means that Russia can kind of make up that money. The point where it becomes very hard is when it becomes very financially, regulatorily difficult to export that oil. Um, And that's what potentially this insurance ban could do. So I think that's one really to keep an eye on in coming months.
2: Well, thank you, Ben. That was hugely in-depth, I think, just what we needed to, to throw some nuance on some of the things that are being talked about in terms of sanctions. Um, and as you said, the, the trade-offs that, that policymakers uh, and the public are going to be start going to start thinking about. Um, Dom, no worries if not, did you have any thoughts or observations or questions for Ben listening to that? And of course, anybody else listening, if you do have questions, do do please DM. We will try to get them out uh, live.
0: Um, I haven't, but I would like to say thanks to Ben for, for clearing up the stuff about the the pipeline in hungary and orban that, that that's been a, a bee in my bonnet for a few days now i've really, really not not understood that and uh, no so just so that, i think well, that's very clear thank you very much
1: great yeah no it's it's really interesting i mean uh, especially for the smaller european nations and the nature of kind of eu diplomacy it's got to be all or nothing you can't there's no such thing as a majority vote within the eu and it means that especially for kind of hungary and then with in terms of shipping kind of cyprus and malta these are these are economies where there are exposure to kind of oil and, and issues there and issues with Russian exposure. The UK is a global economy, we're fifth biggest economy in the world. Fundamentally, will survive and make it up elsewhere. For smaller nations, especially those border kind of Russia, it's really really noting how important the sacrifice they're making is, um, and especially if you look at Estonia, Lithuania, Poland. Not only is it a huge courageous decision, given the pure proximity of where they are compared to Russia it's a huge courageous decision given how much their economies are just intrinsically tied into Russia and kind of Russia supporting nations via geography um, and kind of yes there's the bad side of this in Hungary in terms of they're going to make a lot of money via kind of this EU import um, kind of rule that's come in and they're kind of mitigating a lot of the good efforts that have been done by other nations but crucially kind of a lot of those kind of especially quote quote visa grad nations who've been very outspoken polar estonia lithuania slovakia as kind of we say they've made real huge economic sacrifices and um far more than kind of the uk has made and it's really worth kind of commending those decisions
2: just one question from me ben um that was a lot of information and i thought very um succinctly laid out Do, how if, if you're listening if, if you're listening should should people be more, feel more positive from what you're saying about the impact of sanctions on Russia, or should, as I mean, you you highlighted that there are a lot of issues coming down the track in terms of uh, cost of living and and all the sort of interrelated supply chain stuff that you were talking about to do with the, with potash? Should people be um, more positive about the impact of these sanctions on on uh, crippling the Russian economy, or or more negative if there are nations starting to peel away and start to do their own thing and take advantage of the situation?
1: It's an interesting question, and I think kind of um, it kind of speaks to Dom's point earlier a bit in terms of when you see a a country announce, "Oh, we're we're exporting weapons to Ukraine. We're kind of giving them these weapons to fight back." You initially and kind of I do this all the time. I think, "Oh, brilliant! That's great! Kind of that will help the Ukrainian fight back." I look forward about reading the impact in tomorrow's paper. When realistically, it takes a a lot more time. There's a lot more kind of organisational kind of procedural things that need to happen and that's exactly the same with sanctions um if you kind of look at the russian economy especially within oil um it's it's less so about what the damage does now um and it's less so about the kind of immediate impact of financial sanctions um but it's more about kind of changing those supply chains more more widely like is europe now going to actually just move away from russian oil and gas post-conflict because of the fact that they build up new supply chains. They build up new kind of economic relationships elsewhere. Um, and I think with sanctions, that the thing is 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 not necessarily about kind of doing doing things because they're going to cripple the economy of Russia and it's going to be down forty percent. It's more about making life hard, adding adding another layer of of thinking, making making kind of everyday decisions in Russia for Russian businessmen, for Russian local politicians, for national politicians think. Okay, right. Because of this war, we are now having to jump through five extra hoops. We're now having to do this, that, the other, and while the Russian economy, at least from the national figures, looks fine, and um, they've not had any banks collapse, they've not had kind of bailouts of, of banks that we saw kind of during our 2008 recession, um nothing like that's happening. I think it's easy to take it away and go, okay, it's fine, um, while there is kind of a huge impact on Russian consumers and Russian consumers are very aware of this and therefore kind of you would hope that the support for the war degrades and it's kind of always hard to see the impact of sanctions kind of on that huge macro picture that says, oh, GDP is down percent." When really kind of, the, and Potash is a great example of this, it's kind of in the finicky things of what does that actually mean? How are things changing? How are, how are things adapting? And that's the best way to view sanctions. And I think within Russia, there's there's plenty of examples of, of sanctions working in some ways. And there's plenty of examples kind of with oil and gas of maybe there being a bit of room for scepticism. But I think long term sanctions, these sanctions are not going to be just until a peace treaty is signed. This is going to be years afterwards and kind of complete impacts of, say, I don't know, um, Gazprom, for example, now owned by the German government, but previously signed loads of contracts within UK government, they signed it with like the University of Huddersfield or kind of Merton Council was one that that had contracts with Gazprom to supply energy. If you are a procurement body in the UK or another nation, you are now going to take a huge amount of due diligence to any potential contract within Russia, even after this war ends, because you're thinking, what's the likelihood this happens again? What's the likelihood that things flare up in Transnistria, in Georgia, in, in kind of one of the Balkan nations? Um there is a huge amount of pause, I think, and um, Baltic nations, sorry, there's a huge amount of pause in terms of that. And that is something that's going to stay with the Russian economy for the next three, four decades. That's not something that that can kind of ever be really picked up um, on kind of a financial seat or, or a projection
2: sheet. And before I ask you for your final thoughts, Ben and Dom, can we just talk about um, the Ukrainian reaction to this? Because, of course, Vladimir Zelensky and Ukrainian diplomats and politicians are, uh, are traveling to Europe and asking Europe and, and other nations for their support. How, 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 what's, what's, their late, what's their latest moves? I know Zelensky has is, is been berating the, the EU for the, for the slowness of their support. But what can we say today?
1: Um, In terms of Zelensky's response to sanctions, he kind of criticised it for being too slow and too late. Um, And I think that what was interesting was kind of, um, at least in some of the quotes I've seen, was an absence of mentions of gas exports. I think it's kind of uh, the realism that is potentially striking Ukrainians, that a lot of the support for sanctions and a lot of the support kind of is waning a little within kind of EU political institutions, especially that there is an opportunity cost. There is kind of, as I say, kind of desire for unanimity is kind of putting a lot of pressure um, on supportive nations and kind of the political cost for von der Leyen, for other senior figures within the EU um, means that they are really having to put their kind of reputations, political futures on the line in supporting these sanctions, which, in the meantime are making a lot of things kind of very painful and the view that politicians have taken within central europe is essentially there is a threshold to people's support now we've seen there's been consistent support and outpouring of support from from europeans regarding the invasion of ukraine but politicians i think are underestimating that a little and it's worth seeing kind of how long kind of Uh, that goes on and also what is Zelensky's response to that he's obviously kind of endeared himself with millions if not billions of people through this kind of through this stoicism and through this kind of continued campaigning support and kind of continued hounding of nations in a positive way to do the right thing and many of them have but I think if there wasn't that pleasure and that more traditional diplomacy may not have occurred um but I think how Ukraine continue to strategize and continue to kind of call out or mention things that will be helpful will be interesting. And I'm sure Don will kind of have the ability to talk about this in way more detail than me as a kind of man stuck in spreadsheets and and kind of business reports.
0: Well, we are seeing that play out at the moment. I think I think there'll be a um, possibly a slight pause on the on the uh, pushing for weapons as in as in. Ukraine have got what they've asked for now. They they are very careful about um coming across as, as shrill. So so they they they've now got the the biggie, um and I think there will now be a pause before they start saying whatever else there is on the on the list i think the attention will turn to the to the political side um it'll be interesting to see so i'm i'm meeting the estonian prime minister next week uh, it'd be very interesting to hear from her about this this view as as ben said this, the, the those nations closer to russia and literally bordering russia um and those that are that, that are seeing the threat in a very through a very different lens really a much more realist lens in, in many ways Although you can't get much more realist than Kissinger, I guess, but you know they—they are taking a very different view to um, to a lot of the West, the rest of Europe, particularly France and Germany. And it's interesting this to see this block and see how. Ukraine now play the politics. Um, Again, we've talked uh, many times about when do healthy differences of opinion become cracks in the alliance? Um, I don't think we're anywhere near that yet. But but the the focus on the politics now away from the weapons, I think, will will shine, shine a light on some of these issues. And um, yeah, before we before we speak again, I'll be I'll be chatting to the Estonian prime minister and I'll be be keen to um, to ask us some of these
2: questions. Well, thank you, Ben. And thank you, Dom. Can I just ask for your final thoughts then? Um, it might be worth actually me mentioning now to all of our listeners that uh, in the United Kingdom, the Queen's Platinum Jubilee starts tomorrow. So we will not have uh, live shows at 1pm as we usually do. The podcast continues. We've recorded a 100 days of war for Friday and we've got a special question and answer podcast based on your questions that you sent in for tomorrow but we will not be doing a a live podcast on the on the latest updates for the next two days. So Ben and Dom, what should we be looking for over uh, Thursday Friday and and the coming weekend?
1: Uh I think it's kind of worth um looking at what is what is kind of reaction of um major politicians kind of economists analysts to this latest oil and gas announcement. This is in many ways a better deal than a lot of people were expecting but it still falls short in in quite a few ways in terms of sanctions so something to watch out is what is kind of the analysis of country by country impact are we going to begin to see kind of people raising concerns in kind of national economies about the impact of these sanctions and kind of finally of all what is the Russian reaction how are they going to seek to kind of move around these sanctions is it is it kind of possible because they are quite w- widespread um and and kind of how how does that materialize because obviously russia is going to try and evade sanctions it, it doesn't want its economy to become completely kind of fortress as it is it, it, it already was but it has become even more so so what is the russian reaction to this going on and kind of how do you, smaller states that kind of as we say are more financially exposed to sanctions um, are more dependent on the russian economy how is how strong is their support? How
2: steadfast is it? And Dom Nichols, would you like the final words? Thank you. Yes, I
0: think the focus on the from the military side, from the operational side in in country, has got to be still be on X on that uh, on the city. I mean, Russia have got, they've gone all in now. They cannot take a pause. They they've got to keep grinding through that city. If they don't take it now, then I don't know if they if they will. Interesting to look at some of the stats coming out from the battles there. The um, how few Russian. Armored vehicles and personnel are being killed outside of the city, and that suggests that either Ukrainian forces are running out of ammunition, um, which I don't think is the case, because otherwise we, we would see this mass breakout to the west. Uh, it might be a suggestion that that there are no hundreds of, of Russian um, armored vehicles there. They've just we've, we've talked before about how how they're having to rely on T sixty two, and and they're taking a huge huge hit rate on their on their armored vehicles. So. I think they are close to culminating which is when you when you you might not be going back but you can no longer continue offensive action and they have to take from their point of view sever the next city before that happens because if they if they culminate as I said at the start of this pod about the, the different forces, the Chechens, the Wagner Group, the airborne forces, you know, not, not natural bedfellows. So, you know, they are pushing people into this fight to take that city, and if they don't come away with a win in the next few days, then I think it, any reversal there could be very, very serious for Russia, indeed.
2: Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Sophie Coe.